A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Escape the Ordinary with Green and Black's Organic Chocolate, sponsor of the Women's Podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I hope you're all getting on okay as we move ever closer to level five. By the time you hear this, we might already be there. Um, But anyway, I hope you're keeping okay. We're delighted on the Women's Podcast to find out today that we've been nominated in the podcast category of the Journalism Awards run by News Brands Ireland. So thank you all for your support and let's see what happens when the awards uh, go through later on this year. Um, but it's really nice to be nominated with other two of our other Irish Times podcasts, actually, Inside Politics and the Coronavirus podcast. So that was some good news today. And other good news is that New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern had another electoral victory. And so we're delighted for her. And if she's listening, we'd love to have you on the podcast sometime, Jacinda. We're big fans of yours. I'm sure she is an avid listener. Now, we're not going to be talking about the pandemic today because life goes on and the fight for justice for women continues. And the fight we're going to be talking about today has been going on for decades. As many of you will know, campaigners and academics have called for the government to prevent records compiled by the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes being sealed for 30 years. Senators also expressed serious concerns over proposed legislation related to the Commission's records in a debate in the Shannon last week. Now, the bill was brought forward at lightning speed by Minister for Children Roderick O'Gorman and the debate will continue this week in the Dáil. The Clan Project, Justice for Magdalens and the Adoption Rights Alliance are all against the records being sealed. They say it will result in people being unable to access information about their disappeared relatives or babies who are buried in unmarked graves. So today we asked human rights lawyer Maeve O'Rourke to talk to us about the issues and about her fight with the Clan Project and the Justice for Magdalens to ensure the women who were treated so horrifically by institutions of the state and the Catholic Church get access to their information. And also with us was Mary Harney, a woman now in her 70s who was born in Bespera Mother and Baby Home in Cork and knows firsthand the effect of being denied access to information about her identity. And Mary had a message for Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, today. The perpetrators of these abuses are being protected. And they're being protected by the state. And state and church should be separate. There should not be a collusion, but there still is. What are they afraid of revealing is a question that's never asked. What? What? Who is it going to harm? But I began by asking Maeve O'Rourke to tell us about the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes and the bill currently going through the Dáil. Yeah, Roisin. So in 2015, following the national and international uproar over the question of how many babies were buried in a disused septic tank in the grounds of the Chew Mother and Baby Home, the Minister for Children at that time, Charlie Flanagan, 
established a commission of investigation into mother and baby homes and certain related matters. That's the official title. It was set up to investigate 18 institutions, uh, that is 14 mother and baby homes and a representative sample of county homes. Those 18 institutions are really only a tenth of the number of institutions, agencies and individuals that are understood to have been involved in separating unmarried mothers and their children during the 20th century in Ireland. Um, But anyway, the investigation has been ongoing for the last five years. It was anticipated not to take this long. There's been various delays and there have been some interim reports. Um, But this is a really highly anticipated final report that's due to be delivered to the minister um, at the end of October. And what did they learn in those years of investigations? Like who would they have been speaking to and what, as someone like yourself who's been involved in this for a long time, what are you hoping that that a light will be shone on? Well, as a human rights lawyer, I, I always hoped that in their investigations, the commission would gather evidence and evaluate it by reference to constitutional rights standards and the standards under the European Convention on Human Rights and that it would examine did arbitrary detention happen in the sense of were women locked in without legal authority, without the proper safeguards, um, were unlawful um, adoptions uh, carried out, um, was the law complied with or did we actually have such serious human rights violations as Um, medical experimentation without consent, uh, enforced disappearance, one of the most serious human rights violations there is where the state is involved in or knows of the detention or abduction of a person following which it refuses to release their fate and whereabouts to their family. So I was really hoping for a human rights based investigation because there has been very, very little accountability for these so-called historical abuses. They're not historical. They continue today because people still don't know the information about themselves and their family members. But there have been very few cases in the courts. There haven't been prosecutions. So really, this is where we're at This is the accountability that's available now, findings of a commission, recommendations for for preventing similar harms in the future and recommendations around reparation. Now, it's it's really unclear uh, what the particular perspective will be, I suppose, when the report comes out. There are a lot of historians working on the commission. It is chaired by a judge. So we don't really know yet whether it'll be primarily an historical account, whether it will make legal findings. It had two different committees, a confidential committee and an investigative committee. On its website, it only ever uh, advertised the option of going to the confidential committee, um, which I think will produce a quite um, a report that doesn't necessarily make adverse findings, but rather gives general kind of insight into the type of things people said happened to them, but doesn't necessarily analyze them from any uh, legal perspective. So it was never clear how you got to the investigation part of it. Uh, there's actually um, a lot of opacity really around how it operated and what exactly will be the focus of its final report. So it'll be fascinating to find out what they actually say and what approach they took. And, you know, hopefully you'd hope that it would be the human rights approach that you just outlined, but possibly it could be something that's more a social history uh, type of thing, which wouldn't be as as strong. You're a co-director of the Clan Project. Can you tell everybody what that is and what you've been working on in that? 
Yes, um, I set up with Claire McGettrick of Adoption Rights Alliance. I set up the Clan Project in 2015. It's a collaboration between Justice for Magdalene's Research and Adoption Rights Alliance, both voluntary groups, mainly research groups, but also with um, a strong kind of uh, membership in the case of Adoption Rights Alliance of several thousand people through Facebook. Um, and what we did was got together with one of the world's biggest law firms, Hogan Lovells, their London office. Uh, they offered free assistance from solicitors for anybody who wanted to put together a full comprehensive witness statement for this commission of investigation because um, ordinarily no one had access to lawyers to help them give evidence and it was clear from the beginning that the commission actually was not going to give you a transcript if you went and gave evidence you wouldn't be allowed to have a copy of what you said and we really wanted people to be able to have a copy of what they said for their own files not to mention to be able to gather together uh, the witness statements that people wished to donate to the clan project anonymized of course and make legal arguments on foot of the 80 full witness statements that we did gather from um, conversations with around about 150 people. And um, so we got the assistance of over 60 solicitors through Hogan Lovells and also over 20 barristers pro bono from the Bar of Ireland who did a lot of research into the laws that applied at the time and the constitutional and European human rights laws that may have been breached and the clan project report which was released at the end of 2018 and which we sent to the government as well as of course the commission um, it's a 150 page summary of the evidence that we gathered with really uh, searing uh, excerpts from the witness statements but also crucially a lot of legal analysis about the wrongs that were done the remedies that are required now and some analysis of how the commission operated and crucially for the bill that we're talking about this week recommendations and human rights laws relating to the right of access to information which has been a problem the whole way through this investigation and unfortunately is set to be a problem for a long time to come and just briefly tell us about stand for truth as well because that's another aspect to it all Yes, we have the last couple of weeks around the Commission of Investigation Records Bill, which unfortunately is not about access to records. Uh, the bill that's been in the Shannon and the Dole, we've been using the hashtag stand for truth. And where that arose was in 2018 when the Pope came to town. It was the same summer that a group of us in Justice for Magdalene's and Nora Casey had also brought together hundreds of the Magdalene laundry survivors voluntarily to meet each other and to discuss memorialization because Dublin City Council was at that time planning and selling the last um, Magdalene Laundry to close, which was on Sean McDermott Street, which is two acres in size and which Dublin City Council had gotten a land swap with the nuns that used to run it. Um, it had lain derelict for 20 years and now Dublin City Council wanted to sell it to a budget Japanese hotel chain and there still had been no memorialization of Magdalene Laundries. Um, and there's actually never been memorialization of the industrial schools and memorialization really for many, many survivors of abuse does not mean just a statue. It actually means national education. So very much comes together with the need for archives for personal data access and for the administrative records of the state and of the institutions to be released anonymized to the extent necessary to the public. So Stand for Truth was a gathering that Colin O'Gorman and some other activists put together in the same summer that the women of Magdalene Laundries had to come together and the Pope was coming to town. And it was on the same day there was of the Pope's Mass 
um, the Stand for Truth activists gathered together a huge gathering of people to show at the same time solidarity for people who'd been through church-related, state-sponsored institutional abuse in Ireland. And we marched silently down to the site of the Magdalene Laundry on Sean McDermott Street. And where it all comes together, really, and what we were saying at the time is, across the board with Ireland's so-called historical institutional and adoption-related abuses, some things have been the same. Um, the denial of rights was the same across the board. These clear, massive constitutional rights violations that just were not heeded because people didn't care that a certain subset of our society was suffering them because for whatever reason, they were not seen as having the same rights as everybody else. And nowadays, something that is very common is the denial of access to information. So even though there has been some investigation, there have been some payouts for some people, it's never... Uh, accountability in the sense of actually telling the truth and giving people access to their information. So one thing that we are proposing from Justice for Magdalene's research and Adoption Rights Alliance now is a discussion around what could be done in the site of the last Magdalene laundry to close at Sean McDermott Street. Um, and that's something that we're starting to discuss more and more now because the Mother and Baby Homes Commission report is about to come out and there is actually a need across the board for national truth telling, a museum, a, a national archive, a place for social enterprise for survivors in the community as well as there's a plan for housing and third level education down there in John McDermott Street. So it's all kind of comes together uh, and I hope that's not too long-winded a way of describing No, I mean I think it's really interesting to know what your goal is ultimately but let's Let's go back to the records bill, because there's been a lot on social media about this. People will have seen various people saying this can't go through the way it is. Can you let people know um, why it's so important that there is more access than what is being proposed and why Tuzla, for example, is not the right place for all these records to go and maybe put it in the context of somebody who has been through one of these institutions and what they deserve out of this? Okay, well, uh, one thing I've been sending to the TDs and senators in the past two weeks um, is a copy, a redacted or an anonymized copy of a letter that a woman who I know uh, who was in a was detained in a mother and baby home and whose child was taken from her got back from the Commission of Investigation when she wrote uh, to get her personal records. So she knew as someone who was affected by one of the 18 institutions under investigation that the mother and baby homes was collecting all the information there is in the country from everywhere, state files, institutional records, diocesan records, bishops records. And she wrote to say, can I please have my personal data? And the, the letter back says, you know, dear so-and-so, um, I can confirm that we have these 10 uh, fields of data on you. And you like bullet points, you know, about all these different details of her life. And, um, you know, I confirmed that we cannot give you any of it because under section 39 of the Commissions of Investigation Act, the right of access under the GDPR is restricted to the extent necessary to safeguard the effective functioning of our commission and the future cooperation of witnesses. And like that in itself just shows that the commission does not consider the people who suffered these violations to be at the heart of it. How can it not be in the interest of the effective functioning of a commission that is set up to investigate forced family separation, to give 
the people who were forcibly separated from their family the information about themselves and about their own experiences. It's simply not about them. I mean, that's what that would objectively demonstrate. And unfortunately, that is now going to be the situation, according to the government, after the commission is finished. So the commission didn't allow anybody who was affected by forced family separation access to any of the records it was gathering at all. It didn't give people even a transcript of their own testimony. Um, it didn't allow them to comment on or to suggest further lines of inquiry based on the records that it was gathering in from the state and from the church. And all of this, uh, as I was arguing at the time, was contrary to the European Convention on Human Rights, but actually also, I think, contrary to Section 12 of the Commissions of Investigation Act 2004, which requires every commission to give evidence that it's holding to people who are there to give testimony in case they need it. Um, so unfortunately, things did not go well while the commission was operating for people who were concerned. And now there is a bill that the Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, like brought up lightning speed into the Shannon and the Dáil. Like it was published about a week and a half ago and it's already gone the whole way through the Shannon and the Dáil amendments deadline is denied at six. And what it proposes is Rather than the usual course of events where a commission of investigation sends every document to the relevant minister, it proposes to take part of the archive and give it all to Tulsa. Now, on Friday in the Shannon, the minister said that he actually did intend to keep a copy, but until Friday night, he had not been saying that. Um, the records that are proposed to be sent to Tulsa are a database and the underlying records of women and children who are in eight. 15 of the 18 institutions and then everything else in the archive according to the minister is to be sealed entirely including from survivors and adopted people themselves for the next 30 years and including state records that otherwise should be in the national archives because they are already 30 years old. The problem people have with Tulsa and Mary will speak more to this is that it is quite clear that they operate a blanket policy of considering adopted people's first name, um, even, at birth to be third party data. So birth certificates in Ireland have been public documents since the 1800s. Um, and when a person applies for their name, clearly Tuzla is incorporating this whole sequence of events that they actually don't know is going to transpire. That if they give someone their own name, even their first name, they will go off and find their publicly registered birth cert as they're entitled to do. And then who knows what might happen is what Tulsa is thinking. Mm. And so instead, they have your file and you hear the most horrendous stories of people sitting across from a social worker with their file in their hand, seeing everything that they won't give them. And it, bear in mind, it can take years to even get to that meeting with the social worker because of resource constraints. Mm. And what they say they do is they have to do a risk assessment. This is a blanket policy of trying to contact extended family members of a natural family if the parents are dead to find somebody who can give consent. Uh, and, and I mean, that's now I'm not personally affected. So I feel I don't even feel like comfortable describing the extent of the trauma that is still being meted out on people. But the collaborative forum of um, former residents of mother and baby homes was its name, was set up by ministers of home to advise uh, the government on what to do about mother and baby homes records. And Mary was on the collaborative forum and it's key, one of its key recommendations repeatedly 
was that Tulsa should have nothing more to do with information and tracing. And then the minister brought forward a bill that sends, you know, a big part of the commission's archive to Tulsa. Um, and then the other part of the bill is that it doesn't do anything to stop the sealing of everything else for 30 years. And I mean, I'm going to come to Mary Harney now in a second, because I think this is a good place to bring you in, Mary. But if you were to be cynical and Maeve, you are very involved in this and many, many, many long hours on it uh, and plenty of time to think about it. Why is this happening? We're used to being very cynical about the Catholic Church in Ireland and about their dealings and the church and state and how how embroiled they were really in all of these institutions and, and working together in lots of ways because it suited both of the institutions of the state and the Catholic Church to work together in this. Do you see it as, um, I hate to, hesitate to use the word conspiracy, but do you see it in, those, in that vein or do you think it's more a matter of incompetence or laziness or not paying enough attention? Where do you land when it comes to the why of this happening? So it's like on a human level, practically impossible to understand how this could actually be happening but I suppose as a lawyer I see it as a combination of power it's it's about power and then and then that affects legal interpretations to keep it as the status quo and to find any reason to only actually recognize the interests and not even rights but the interests of the people who've always held the power and to completely ignore the rights of the people who have been denied them in the past. So there's very much an element of the people who are in charge just do not seem to care to want to change the status quo. And when it comes to the law, the people in charge do not seem to want to recognize the legal rights of all of the people who have been so abused in the past. It's incomprehensible that this abuse happened in the first place because it was such a clear and obvious and systematic violation of the most basic constitutional rights. I mean, how do you incarcerate all those women without any legal grounds? How do you take children away? How do you send them to America? How does the Irish state give give passports when it was entirely illegal to do that? And how did everybody turn a blind eye? So I just feel like I wasn't alive for a lot of when this is happening but I guess we are still very much in it and we actually have to face that and because it's so obvious that the GDPR is actually about giving people access to their data not protecting people who don't want their names known as people who ran an institution it's so obvious that there's something going on here and that something I think is you know, power and misogyny. And because I've been talking a bit about enforced disappearance as a very serious human rights violation. And I really believe that had people with guns come to the doors of these women's houses and taken their children and God forbid their teenage boys away in the middle of the night as part of some kind of armed resistance of some or like war, that we would actually see this as being as serious as it is. But because it was women and because the church and nuns were running these institutions and priests were saying to everybody that this was was what had to be done, like the actual legal realities of it are simply ignored. So it's not that the law is not on the survivor side. There's something else going on. And I I think it's it's power on it and... I suppose it's to me a little insight into how this all happened in the first place. And it's and it just shows how much power is needed to resist it. And we really do have to build a movement to 
just obtain them as basic rights. And that's what you've been doing. And Maeve, I know all our listeners listening to you will be so grateful to you and all the people involved in the project who are doing this work. Green and Black's Organic Chocolate, a selection of ethically sourced flavours combined with a rich cocoa intensity. Katrina Crow wrote an excellent piece in the Irish Times yesterday. I don't know if you saw it, Maeve, but she's talking about how important as an archivist, and obviously she was former director of the National Archives, and she's saying that sealing these records for 30 years makes no sense and denies access to survivors and historians for an unreasonable length of time. The database of the many thousands of women and children who resided almost all unwillingly in these homes is also a hugely valuable record newly created from these disparate sources. And it will, of course, be of most interest to survivors and their relatives. And they must be facilitated to see any record which has a bearing on their own pasts and identities. So I think it's a good time to bring Mary in. Um, Mary, who was born in 1949 in Bespera Mother and Baby Institution, Cork. And you, you're coming to us from Galway. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Mary. Can you take us back and tell us a little about your story uh, being born in an institution, the kind that Maeve has been describing there? Yeah, um, I was born in uh, 1949 in Besborough, Mother and Baby Institution. Um, My mother was not married, which was why she was uh, taken there. And um, I was uh, kept with my mother for two and a half years in that institution. Uh, During that time, many other babies that were born at the same time had been taken. And we use the word fostered, uh, inverted commas, um, or illegally adopted out to uh, places. And Maeve mentioned, you know, the, the number of children that went to America. But Mike Malott in his book, Banished Babies, show us that babies were sent to Turkey, India, Venezuela, and other uh, parts of the world. But this was done with the um, collusion of the Irish government because um, the uh, archives from the Foreign Affairs Department showed the letters between ministers, between legations, between um, the the Catholic Church in America, the Irish Catholic Church, McQuaid. You know, there's one letter that says we must not upset the Archbishop. So you know, th- there is a clear connection, and that is archived. It's in the National Archives. Anybody can go and see those files, where there is a clear connection between church and state. So. At the time I was there, children were being illegally sent to foreign countries. I uh, One of the criteria was that you couldn't have a communicable disease. The Americans wouldn't uh, issue passports for children that had communicable diseases. And I'd had, um, I think it was diphtheria and measles or something like that. But anyway, I wasn't eligible to go abroad. I was very skinny child, I suppose, but I wasn't eligible. So my mother was allowed to stay there with me for the two and a half years. During that time, uh, the women there were committed to working for the institution, everything from the laundry of the baby's nappies and clothes and the nun's garments. And um, uh, there was a farm there at Bespera at that time. Uh, milking the cows. You know, my mother was punished one time by 
being uh, forced onto her knees to cut the grass with a pair of scissors because she had disobeyed some rule. And the women there were only allowed to see their children at specific times allowed by the nuns. And the nuns could stop that. If they perceived a woman had broken some rule, they could deny the woman access to her child. So imagine all to all of the audience I'm speaking to, imagine your children being in a metal cot, which at that time was always lead paint, and we chewed the bars off it. We chewed the paint because we were hungry all the time. And um, the food was mostly a mixture of um, what we call goodie or gruel. It was um, bread and butter mixed with warm milk and sugar. Um, but we were only fed at specific times of the day. It didn't matter that a baby was hungry or crying for food. The nuns set the rules and the regulations and they had to be obeyed. My mother put herself, uh, volunteered for sluice duty, which was to uh, clean the dirty baby's nappies into sluices because it was close to where the babies were kept. So she could, if there was no nuns around, she could look in the door and see me. And so at age two and a half, um, the nuns came to my mother one day and said, Mary is going and get her ready and I'll be back in a half an hour. So my mother and all the women who were there at the time, remember this is 1949, 1950s now, we're going back to 51 or 52, um, had knitted little clothes for me, little jumper and skirts and, you know, little things that mothers at that time liked to knit for their babies. And um, she dressed me in those clothes. And a half an hour later, the nun came down and got me. And I can remember this walk. People say, you can't remember back to two and a half. I can remember the walk because I was immediately taken at the door of the, um, the children's room by a nun. And she held my hand and walked me to the end of the corridor. By that time, my mother had been, the door had been shut on my mother again. So my mother never saw me again. And was not, the whole intention was that these women should not, under McQuaid's rules, should not have any connection with their fallen mothers. So to my mother standing there watching her little two and a half year old, she was never to see me again. Um, I was given, or as court records would prove, taken and the word taken is emphasized by two elderly people who knew nothing about the care of children. I was taken to a house in Red Abbey Street in Cork. And my little room in that house was um, a tiny bedroom where one, and I, this is one thing I will, I have memory of to this day. On the wall, on one wall, was a picture of St. Michael, the archangel, um, with his trident shoving the devils back into hell, the fallen saints or whatever. And it had a glow, um, a nightlight, which never went out, a lamp that never went out. And it flickered and flickered and flickered. 
And as a two and a half year old, the terror that I felt looking at this picture, I screamed, I tried to get out. I couldn't, I was locked in. Um, like I said, these people didn't know anything about children. Um, they neglected me to the point that I was suffering from malnutrition. And again, I don't think they were vicious people, but there was no follow-up. There was no social workers. There was nothing. But they did send me to school to the South Prez over there. And I could read by the time I was four and a half or five. And then um, I also, they used to go out and, uh, in the evenings to play I don't know, church, social, whist drive or something. I figured out how to get a chair and get out of that house. I was coming up on five and I used to, in my nightdress and bare feet, go up the road to uh, number 11, Red Abbey Street. I remember all this. And the woman's name was Mrs. Hayes, Hayes and she had her grown-up family and she would... I don't know if she was a big bosomed woman or not, but to me, I would fall into her. And she always gave me sugar sandwiches or jam because they were dirt poor themselves. They had nothing. And she, at one point, wanted to get take me as one of her family. And she made uh, a call to the ISPCC. Unfortunately, that resulted in... Um, because she also told the ISPCC that she saw marks on the back of my legs where I'd been beaten. But she told the ISPCC that um, I was being neglected and she wanted to take me. And the ISPCC came to the house. And the next thing I know, Mr. O'Callaghan, we called him the cruelty man. He was the ISPCC inspector, but was also known as the, always known as the cruelty man. He wore a uniform like a guard and he put me in a big black car with the foster mother and took me to the court. And the court, um, in its judgment, decided that um, I would be incarcerated in the Good Shepherd Convent Industrial School in Cork until I was 16, based on the fact that the uh, statement given to the judge was the whereabouts of my mother was unknown and therefore I was without means of support whatever that means for a five-year-old but that was the lie that was told to the court because at that time my mother had been sent exported not by her own free will but by the nuns had paid her fare to go to work in a hospital in Cardiff called St. Winifred's Hospital, which was run by the same order of nuns as Bespra. Okay. She worked in their laundry. It was not a Magdalene laundry. It was a laundry attached to the hospital. So they had spirited her away. And Mary, they knew exactly where she was. But the lie that was told was that she was nowhere on the scene. And as a result, you spent th those years in, in the Good Shepherd Industrial School in Cork. Can we fast forward a bit? Because when you got out of there at 16 and a half years of age, you actually found out that your mother was alive and you became determined to find her. But going back to what we're saying about access to records and stuff, that was very difficult to do. Well, strangely enough, um, no, um, in 1965 or 
July or whatever, 65, going into the end of July. I See, I'd been told at 11 my mother was dead. And I was looking for something. Um, I can't remember what at the time. It was probably a birth certificate or something. But anyway, I discovered that my mother wasn't dead. And actually, it was a priest that helped me from the Sacred Heart Missionary in Cork. He helped me to find out from, because he was a priest, he could call the nuns and they'd tell him anything. <laughs> yeah. He asked them and they told him quite straight up that, no, my mother wasn't dead. She, But they couldn't say where she was, but she was somewhere in England. And he told me that. And so... I went off down to Besborough to try and find out, and I didn't get any information then, but I was determined. So I went off to England thinking that England looked the size of what it did on a map. I had no idea. So I went from, um, from Cork to Fishguard, Fishguard to Paddington, and then I lived on the streets because I had no idea how to do anything. I was put out of that without the facts of life. I didn't even know, no wonder so many of us got pregnant as soon as we came out of there. I didn't know anything, but I was determined to find my mother. And I met up with some other people who had been in the Good Shepherds with me. And basically we lived on the streets and slept under benches in railway stations. Eventually I got sick to the point where I got, um, I was taken in by a halfway house. They found me a job in Mill Hill in London, working with nuns that were training baby nurses. Irony of ironies, but there you go. Anyway, um, there was a newspaper, and I think it's still around, called the News of the World. Yeah. <laughs> and I had read that, and I thought, ha, huh, these are the people who will splash a story about anything, anytime. So I wrote to the nuns in Vesper and I said, if you don't tell me this information, I am going to spread your, my story all over the news of the world and I'm going to name you. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, now it might have been four weeks, four or five weeks, back came a tiny little letter which said, this is your mother's married name. This is how many sisters you have. And this is where she lives. They knew wow. all the time. Incredible. And and you did then get in touch with your mother. But I mean, this is the heartbreaking thing of it. What is that like? You know, you, you that mother daughter bond that you had for those two and a half years long gone. What was it like when you finally did meet your mother? Um, for me, it was a, a shock. Um, I had spoken to her on the phone before I met her. And her husband brought her down to Mill Hill with the two children. They were very young then. And um, in when you're institutionalized and you see movies, uh, uh, films about, uh, you know, like people like um, Ingrid Bergman, you know, all of that, uh, Greta Garbo, whatever. And the nuns did show us movies. I had this and also I read everything I could steal. And so I had an image of these like women that came to um, posh boarding schools, you know, dressed to the nines, tall, like at least six feet with a cigarette and a holder hanging out, you know, that kind of image. What I got was what I looked like, small, fat and Irish. 
<laughs> I'll tell you, look grand to me. I wouldn't be worried about that. But it wasn't the glamorous. It wasn't the dream, you yeah. know. And it was like, oh, no, this can't be true. This is not who I want. But anyway, <laughs> uh, suffice to say, I had to find out what it was like to go. And I couldn't live in a small house. I was institutionalized, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally. So off I went and joined the British Army. And that's a whole other story, Mary. You're, you've, a, you've, a, you've an incredible story. And then you went on to study human rights law. I'm really interested now for you maybe to uh, tell us about what you think, what, what's happening with this bill, and about Maeve's work as well, and about your um, research and uh, work towards making sure that people's identities are, that people are given access to their identities and given the information they need in order to piece together the lives that they, you know, were taken away from them, I suppose. Yeah, and um, when I spoke at the Doyle last uh, December about the 75-year bill, um, I mentioned that in 1965 and into the early 80s, I had written away for a whole bunch of information to places like the Department of Education um, to find out what illnesses I had when I was a child. Um, I wrote to um, the Adoption Authority, the ISPCC, various other institutions. Now, it's amazing how many fires the ISPCC had. Surprised Ireland hasn't burnt down. There never seems to be any records there. And then I encountered, um, for for example, the Adoption Authority itself, um, told me they could not give me information on the people who fostered me uh, because at one time those people had applied to actually adopt me when adoption became legal. Now, bear in mind that those people at the time would have been at least 150 by the time I wrote to the AAI. I was told I couldn't have information because it was third-party information, even though they were deceased and GDPR doesn't concern deceased people. No information. So when I wrote to various organizations, this was the the mantra, and this was after FOI and GDPR came in. So since that time, the the laws have been misinterpreted. They're misguided. Um, They are uh, used as punitive methods. And I think Maeve reported the case of a woman who applied to the commission Um, I have a friend who told me that when she applied to Tusla, she was told that because her mother was dead, it would have to be her aunt that would have to give permission. What's it got to do with her aunt? So this is the kind of thing we're experiencing all the way along the line. And Mary, do you, I asked uh, Maeve this and maybe Maeve, you can come in and sort of in a minute and tell us where we are now with the bill, because you mentioned six o'clock there, which is coming up soon. Um, Do you put it down to power and misogyny in the way that Maeve has described? You are someone who's very um, much been through it on a personal level and can speak about that. When you look back and reflect on it, why do you think this is still being made so difficult for for people who, who deserve so much more than they're getting? It's purely, I believe, not only is it about power, I believe it's about collusion. I I think one of the questions that hasn't been asked of the minister, Minister O'Gorman, or any other minister, is why? Why do you want, you know, safeguard and preserve? 
for whom and for what? Um, 30 years is too long for us. You know, I'm in my late 70s. You know, I'm not going to be around forever. No, none of us are. But we're being put through this because there is some kind of a collusion. We know indemnity was provided in the Ryan Commission. The perpetrators of these abuses are being protected. And they're being protected by the state. And state and church should be separate. There should not be a collusion, but there still is. What are they afraid of revealing is a question that's never asked. What? What? Who is it going to harm? We know that there are privacy rights. We all get that. We know all about confidentiality. But what's happening here is secrecy is covering the right to privacy. We're using the excuse of secrecy. And I'm a great believer in Emile Zola. And he once said about the truth um, that the truth is being, and justice is being rammed down the people's throats with the travesty of state security as a pretext. Perfect. Perfect. Maeve, would you come in here again, please? I mean, it's just, it's awful listening to Mary's story. And I know you've spoken to so many women and heard so many stories. Um, And there, there she is there in her 70s, you know, still trying to get answers. Maeve, what do you want to say to the minister now? And what do you want to happen with this bill? Well, like I said, this bill has been rushed through in less than two weeks. So there's only so much that any of us who are, you know, advocating can realistically hope to achieve now. And one of those things certainly is that he clarifies for the avoidance of doubt for his officials who don't seem to think that this is the case, that the GDPR applies to the archive once he receives it and that there is a right of subject access to what he holds and it will not be fully sealed for 30 years. We've also asked him to just um, to produce a full comprehensive index to everything that he receives so that we can start to have that consultation that is so desperately needed about releasing records to varying degrees, of course. Absolutely nobody is asking that people who were abused should have their personal data revealed without their consent. That is absolutely crucial to state. But there is a real need now for a movement of releasing state files and the institutional administrative records across the board from all these different sealed archives. The Ryan Commission, the McAleese Archive of all the state records of the Magdalene Laundry still sealed entirely. And now the Mother and Baby Homes Commission, that has to start to happen. But primarily people have to um, have their personal data access rights vindicated. And of course, that includes the family members of relatives who have disappeared and are still disappeared and who died while institutionalized. So that is the priority. He could absolutely in this bill clarify that the right of subject access um, applies to his archive once he receives it. Also the GDPR, if he confirms that it applies generally to his archive, is very helpful to him down the road once he gets it in dealing with all the other issues that arise where someone else controls your data, asking for it to be amended, asking for it to be erased if some survivors want that. There's a whole plethora of options for him if he simply confirms it does apply. Uh, and it actually, this archive is not going to be fully sealed. And then by producing the index, we can move on. And like I say, 
And there is a proposal there around an archive in Sean McDermott Street. I personally have been working with the Stasi Records Agency to understand how they run theirs uh, with a number of other academics. It was really good to hear the minister say that he's interested in that proposal. I totally recognise that there is massive need for consultation. It is only a proposal. I am not the government. Like that proposal is not anything uh, that can't be consulted upon, of course. So I know because this is so sensitive and I do feel very much... I'm not personally affected, but I'm doing my best. But there's just such a need to start to take the opposite path and steps in the opposite direction of where things have been going up till now. I mentioned Katrina Crow's piece. I should say she's the former head of special projects at the National Archives of Ireland. And she says that this is a chance to learn from the mistakes made with regard to the archives of the Ryan and the McAleese inquiries. And you mentioned them there. I mean, that's also important, too, isn't it? To not do what, what we did with those yeah. yeah, and to realise it's never too late. So if this generation of politicians really means, you know, that really wants to show that they are not the same, it is never too late to release these archives, to treat people who are affected with the respect and the dignity they deserve and to begin to tell the truth. Because actually this is all about preventing it in the future as much as it is about affording dignity to people who suffered in the past. And I think Mary, you know, can probably have the last word on that. My understanding is that when people speak out, it is actually so that it doesn't happen again. So that's again why it's not historical. Mary? Yeah, I would say to to the minister, do the right thing here. Not on what he's doing is he's adhering to letters of law instead of spirit of law. And if he can bring forward the 204 Act and amend it, and the other acts that ask for sealing um, and amend those acts instead of introducing a new bill which creates the same um, situation over again, which is going to re-traumatize people and hurt them. And also, I would ask him to bear in mind that this is about human rights. This is our human, it's not, they're not his records, they're our records. We went through it, they're our, they're the history of our records, not the history of his records. And I would also ask him to study the treaties that Ireland has signed, the international treaties um, uh, on civil rights, on civil um, and political rights, um, the rights of the child. I would ask him to study the Convention on Enforced Disappearance. Ireland has not signed on to the Convention on Enforced Disappearance, but it has signed on to all the others. And it is, it is. Ireland's law is superseded by European human rights law, mm. European law. Study the cases where it says, you know, in O'Keefe v. Ireland, the, the, the jurisdiction said quite clearly that ignorance of historical abuses is not an excuse. It's not an excuse. Mm. He has to do the right thing by us as human beings. He has to do not what's legal. Well, that's not true. Of course, he has to do what's legal. But you know what I mean? He's yeah. sticking to this like letter of the law as if, you know, if he breaks away for it, you know, they've done it in Canada. They managed to give people their transcripts, people from industrial schools. They did it in Argentina, in Chile, in Rwanda. 
in uh, Australia. And, and the world didn't fall down. It didn't fall apart. And it Maybe. can't be blamed for COVID either. <laughs> Mary, it's been really um, fascinating to talk to you and you're so powerful as well. And you're you've such a strong voice in all of this. Uh, to both of you, really, before you go, if there's people listening who feel um, incensed by this and really feel that maybe they want to do something, is there anything they can do? Is there any value in people writing to the minister and expressing themselves and, and, and saying that this is not right and that getting involved in some way? Yeah, I absolutely think people have to contact their constituency TDs in particular this week. I mean, now that we have a government with a massive majority, it actually is much harder, I feel, to get traction because um, before when there was confidence in supply and if it wasn't something that there was a solid line on, you could, you know, influence the different parties now with the big block. They really all need to be hearing it. Uh, all the Fianna Fáil, all the Fine Gael and all the Green TDs need to be hearing that this has to change this week in particular. There has to be confirmation of the right of uh, access to your own personal data. Um, and then after that, people, I think we are building movement, people like Mary, all the people who are speaking out. Um, you know, this isn't going to go away. That is one thing I'm forever saying to every politician, like it's actually not. So you might as well do the right thing now because... We're actually not going to stop asking because the information is still going to be there. It's not magically going to disappear. So you might as well do the right thing with it. And um, so, you know, to get educated, to get on board, to go onto the clanproject.org website, to there's many different organizations to speak to people around you. I think we're all affected by this far more than we realize. And it's, again, one of those things that starting to talk about it will break the silence and people will realize every you know people are in it together and actually it's not such a big thing to ask for to want this information and yes our government can do it and we the people are ultimately the ones who are responsible for our laws so there's a lot we can do on on a personal note, Maeve, I just wondered um, where you find the continued motivation, because you spoke, you said a couple of times like you haven't been through it personally, but clearly this is a cause that is like that takes over a lot of your waking moments and probably some of your sleeping ones as well. What keeps you going? Um, you must have faith that things will turn out right in the end. Yeah, well, I teach human rights in anyway Galway. Mary was one of my students last year and I do say to my students the weird and sometimes very difficult thing about being a human rights lawyer is the we're activists is the reason you do it is because you're highly optimistic and idealistic you really believe that things can be different and then the difficulty is that until they are you're constantly dealing with them being not the way you wish they were so it can be really stressful and the way to do it is as a team and with friends so I have a human rights law clinic in NUI Galway where the students do activism together with community organizers and you learn that the key is doing it as a team and doing it together so that's definitely what keeps me going but the reason I got involved in these issues in the first place is because I went to America for my master's the summer that the Ryan report came out I had kind of gone through undergraduate thinking, I'm going to work in the UN on human rights in other people's countries. And I just realized, you know, I actually realized Montreal, which I'd studied in sixth year, was real. I just remember going to my master's, starting to study sex equality with Catherine McKinnon, really famous uh, radical feminist lawyer, and thinking the whole time sitting in that class, Montreal was real. 
Ontreal was real. How did we not talk about the fact that Ontreal was real? Like, so these women are still alive, a lot of them, no apology, like this is our country now. And uh, it's time we did something. And actually Catherine McKinnon in office hours, I was talking to her about writing my master's thesis and she was like, well, what are you going to do about it? So she sounds scary. <laughs> well, Maeve, um, again, I just want to say thank you for all your work and Mary, too. Uh, thank you for speaking out and continuing to beat the drum and not letting it go, because that's the only way that anything ever changes in this country. And even though it takes a long time, sometimes we always get there in the end, Maeve, don't we? Yeah, Mary is amazing. Everybody, all the people who've just keep, uh, I mean, working with uh, people who've been affected by these abuses is just the biggest privilege. And of course, with my colleagues in Justice for Magdalene's research and um, the people in Adoption Rights Alliance, it is amazing and definitely gives you hope for the future of Ireland. If we can solve this, it will put us on an amazing path. And Mary, I will leave the final word for you. How are you now? And, and you have made an incredible life despite all of those awful things that happened to you as a young person. Your life is good now. Well, uh, life is good, uh, you know, because I've achieved what I always wanted to achieve, which was to get an education has always been my goal. But I also suffer from PTSD. So every time I do an interview or I speak to people or I write about it, um, I can suffer the effects of PTSD. It doesn't always happen, but it does. And knowing that, um, I can't stop it if it happens, you know. And this year, after dealing with this for so long, between last year and this year, I've had more attacks of severe PTSD than ever I've had before because it's to the fore. But like Zola, I'm going back to Emil and the Dreyfus case again. He said, it is my duty to speak out. I do not wish to be an accomplice in this travesty. And that's why I still do it after 50 freaking years of doing it. I do not wish to be a part of this travesty and that a travesty of injustice that's like no other in Ireland. It has to stop with us. Maeve and Mary, thank you both for not being accomplices and for doing all the work that you do uh, and for talking to us here on the Women's Podcast. I'm sure we're going to talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you, Rosie. Thanks to Mary Harney and to Maeve O'Rourke. And for more information on that very important issue, please do go to clanproject.org. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves in whatever level we land in and I'll talk to you next time. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.